Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I've got a question I know you've got a good answer for. Do you ever do that thing where you try to catch an awareness of now? Hmm. I feel like it's it's sort of the five-year-old's game, right? I remember I learned to play this with myself when I was a little kid where I would think, no, when is now? No, it's now. No, <laughs> it's now. How soon is now? Exactly. Yeah, um, yeah it is a, like a child's game to a certain extent. You know, as you begin to become aware of time as an abstraction mm. and you ask yourself, what is now? And then, of course, one of the things about this question is you – probably keep asking yourself this question throughout your life. Mm-hmm. Like there's there's no suitable answer that ever presents itself. Yeah, I feel like we so we have the sensation that we live in the present moment, right? There mm-hmm. is this idea of the present. I think it's pretty much there in most people's minds because all cultures seem to have this idea of the present. Maybe not all cultures, but most do. Um, and you've got this feeling that the past is behind you and that's already happened and the future is in front of you. But in between, you have this present moment that I think is in a lot of ways comparable to our relationship to the unconscious mind. And what I mean by that is you get the feeling that a lot of your thinking and a lot of what your brain does is unconscious, but you can never catch the unconscious part of your mind in action, right? Every time you try to be aware of how your mind is working unconsciously, suddenly you're not unconscious anymore. You're conscious of it. Like the flashlight of metacognition kicks on and you you, you can't be aware of unconsciousness. Yeah, it's the feeling of being strapped to a train that's hurtling uh, forward through time and you can't quite turn your head around to see all the various uh, engine parts and wheels and, and what have you that is propelling you. Yeah, and I think the now the now is kind of like this. It's like you suspect that there was just a now, but that now is no more. Uh, you, you can't really turn your attention to it. So you have this general sense you live in the moment of now. But you've but at least for me, I have never really been able to fully become aware of the present. The more I try, the more it, it sort of becomes this slippery tadpole where I'm trying to catch it between my fingers and it's always squirming away. I I know that there are future nows coming, and I'm aware that past nows have gone by, but I can never really find the now of now. So that leads me to wonder, is there a now? Is there even such a thing as the present? And if there is, what is it? And if there isn't, what is this sense of now that we experience and how does it shape our lives? Yeah, it's a fabulous question uh, and, and one that's so easy to dismiss because we we have all these various metaphors that we'll get into to sort of understand time, to sort of tie time up in a little uh, neat little package and set it on a shelf so we don't have to really worry about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and one of those metaphors that we end up using, I think, time travel movies, yeah. time travel TV shows. I'm, I'm watching another one right now. And, uh, and, you know, the characters are always moving around and picking what point in time, what now they wish to go to. And mm-hmm. it, it makes you think of your now, your present moment as a location on some sort of a line or a grid. 
Now, for my own part, as far as mindfulness exercises go, that that attempt to focus in on the present moment and sort of unshackle yourself from past and and future, I think a lot of it does come down to focusing on a rhythmic, ongoing process as opposed to trying to you know grab that moment, that now, or whatever you want to call it. And usually, the focus is on breathing. Because to focus your awareness upon your own breath is to focus on the most immediate conscious exercise of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, it always reminds me of various adages uh, about how God is as close to you as your own breath. And I believe in Islam, uh, they use the jugular or the veins of the body uh, in the same way. So, so like it's as close to you as your own blood or your own yeah, circulation. This flow of blood, the movement of change through your body and through this pinpoint of experience. Uh, and, and, and when I say pinpoint, again, it, you try and grab that pinpoint and it, it just, it, you cannot grasp it. And there are so many, I, I mean, I constantly think of the way literature explores this. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a, it's a recurring theme in a lot of our favorite books and stuff about how whenever somebody has something good or something they want to remember, it, it, they can never have it in the moment, you know? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, so many books, uh, are about life and death. Uh, Cormac McCarthy has said that all great works of literature are about life and death. Mm. You can't have life and death without time. He, he has a great quote from The Crossing uh, that I'll read real quick. Snowflake. You catch the snowflake, but when you look in your hand, you don't have it no more. Maybe you see this dechado, but before you see it, it is gone. If you want to see it, you have to see it on its own ground. If you catch it, you lose it. And where it goes, there is no coming back from. Not even God can bring it back. Oh, that's great. The yeah. now, the now is like the snowflake. Like if you want to hold it in your fingers, it's going to immediately melt. Yeah, it's this. It's just kind of this uh, this concept that we use to make sense of our experience of time. But when you try and, and study it, when you level physics, neuroscience, philosophy, we're, we're going to expose a, n- a number of the different tools you might use to try and capture the now. But time after time, that snowflake just melts away into nothingness. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this will be the first part of a two-part episode, right? That's right. So I think in the first one, we're going to focus more on like the, the experience of time as it relates to physical reality. And then in the second one, we're going to try to look a little bit at the philosophy of time and at uh, neuroscience and psychology and what they can shed light on the experience of now. Right. And there's there's going to be a lot of interconnectedness, too. So this is definitely a two-parter to listen to in order. Now, I would imagine if I was five or six years old and playing this win is now game, I wasn't the first person to do this. This has to go way back in human history. I I can imagine that the ancients were probably writing about this mystery of what is the now, even though we have a sense of now, how come it's so hard to catch? Oh, yeah. I mean, the great thinkers throughout time have tackled this, and most of them have seemed uh, rather frustrated by the nature of time, by the uh, elusive nature of now. Uh, for instance, uh, Aristotle wrote about it in The Physics, uh, which is a 4th century BCE text. He said, For what is now is not a part. A part is a measure of the whole, which must be made up of parts. Time, on the other hand, is not held to be made up of nows. And he goes on, Again, the now which seems to bound the past and the future Does it always remain one and the same, or is it always other and other? It is hard to say. And Aristotle goes on to address the difficulties of time on both counts. Time is a series of nows lined up like beads, uh, you know, back to back. 
and the notion that now is a termination point on a line extending infinitely in either direction. I think this serves to hint toward a, a, a debate that I think most physicists would come down on one side of, and the, the debate is whether time is composed of continuous or discrete quantities. Yes. Now, you can think of all the the objects in the world as made up of either continuous or discrete qualities. One example would be that Water seems to be a continuous quantity. It just sort of like flows and there doesn't seem to be units of it. But in fact, through chemistry, we know that there are units of water. Right. There are H2O molecules. If you get down to the molecular level, you can see that it is discrete and not continuous. And you sort of have to wonder if time is the same way. Time feels like this continuous quantity that there couldn't be like a single smallest indivisible unit of time. Could there be? Well, we will get into that in a yeah. little bit in this episode, but it is one of those things where you can't say, oh, how many, oh, so you, you want to meet me at the coffee shop in three hours? How many times is that? Can you, right. can you break that down into indisputable, um, you know, micro portions of time? Well, I mean, obviously you can have units of time because oh, we yes. do, but they're, they're, they don't seem to be set by nature. There doesn't appear to be a physical bottom limit to dividing time into pieces. Yeah. There's not a, like a Lego brickification of time. Yeah. I mean, if there is, it is a brickification. It's, it's the dividing of, up of time into blocks that we can make sense of, but not the, uh, the, the unearthing of the pieces that make it up. Though at the same time, <laughs> God, this is going to keep happening, isn't it? Later in this episode, we will mention that for the purposes of science, there might be sort of bottom units of time, but not necessarily for the universe itself. Yes, we'll, we'll come back to that because I have more to say on that as well. But for now, I guess we should we should back up a little bit and talk about just the basic experience of, of now and the basic experience of time. Yeah, I guess we should look to uh to physics for some definitions like if you wanted to have a measure of time that wasn't just you know Einstein's cheeky answer Einstein would say uh what's the definition of time it's what you read on a clock but he, <laughs> you know he he's joking like if you're trying to come up with the best physical universe based approximation of what we mean by time what is it well, I mean, it is, at its most basic level, time is the rate of change in the universe. The rate of change in the universe. So yeah. the, the relationship between one point and the next point in the history of an object. Yeah, though doesn't it get – it gets tricky when you start bringing in time-based terms then to yeah. describe it when you bring in history, et cetera. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's one of those things like uh, – you know, the the classic uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance question, like, how can you define quality without uh, invoking the concept of quality? Yeah. How do you define time without invoking the concept of time? Yeah. I mean, basically, though, you have to say, all right, we are creatures that live in a universe where there is change. And stemming from that, we live in a universe of causation to where uh, – the cause must precede the effect of something, mm -hmm. uh, which certainly becomes important when you start thinking about uh, time travel and what have you. We age, the planets move around the sun, and things fall apart, right? Right. Entropy. Yeah. yeah and this is often linked to time, right? Time mm -hmm. seems to have something to do with the direction of entropy in the universe as as things tend toward disorder uh, thermodynamically. The time interval goes up. Yes. Now, early humans quickly took note of the cyclical nature of sun and stars and moon and the seasons, and they utilized this information to organize their lives. Natural time mattered. Local time mattered. 
And for more ancient societies, the understanding of time uh, was as cyclical as the cosmic movements they observe. The sun rose and set. People were born and people died all in an endless cycle. We've touched on on this this uh, version of time uh, many times yeah. on the podcast. And I think it's interesting to look to ancient societies and see how much these markers of time passage and the cyclical nature of the seasons and stuff really seem to matter to them. Like they often invested huge amounts of, of resources and energy into projects for like marking celestial events that would be recurring events. Yeah. Why did they do that? I mean, was that really necessary? I would, I would love to do a future episode where we explore this more because, uh, one of the books that I, I used in research here was Dan Falk's In Search of Time, The History, Physics, and Philosophy of Time, an excellent volume. And he devotes a lot of time to discuss these ancient cultures and ancient peoples, the Neolithic treatment of time, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that would definitely be worth an episode. Like, what were the reasons these cycles were so meaningful in their lives? Yeah, and, and it certainly was meaningful because that the repetition of this cycle made things matter. Mm-hmm. I think it was Iliadi who said that in cyclical time, uh, any incident in your life only matters insofar as it uh, repeats uh, an archetypical moment of significance. Yeah, I think we can see this distinction between the idea of cyclical time and and linear time showing up also in the types of uh, like stories that people like to consume. Yeah, <clears throat> like is is a story meaningful because it recapitulates a story that's already been told a million times, or is it meaningful because it tells a new story that's never been told before? Exactly. Now, of course, as human societies became more modern, they largely discarded cyclical time uh, in favor of linear time, all with a great deal of help from calendars and clocks. Now, but before we go... <laughs> <laughs> the devil's contracts. <laughs> yes. Now, now, before we go any further, uh, I thought we might take a moment to talk about metaphors. Okay. Because I mean, we've already stepped in a number of them, and we're going to continue to to use them intentionally and accidentally as we d- discuss now and time. I think it's just worth letting you know out there that we have already had to stop and edit out like at least a dozen times we s- use the word time. Right. So if you get sick of hearing it uh, a dozen times... Then, uh, then just know that we there were like three dozen instances that were cut out. But it, it totally pervades all of our metaphors and our figures of speech, right? Yeah, I mean that that's the really the damning thing about about time is that nothing in our lives is as close and personal, and yet at the same time so abstract and resistant to our understanding. Mm-hmm. But still, we try, right? And one of the ways that we we try to understand time. Uh, is we, we roll out metaphors. As with consciousness, parts, uh, part of the problem is that we're just attempting to understand the thing from within it. Uh, even more so than the human mind, we can't step outside the human experience of time to consider the thing. In that uh, book I mentioned by, uh, by Dan Falk, uh, In Search of Time, The History, Physics, and Philosophy of Time, he points out that we've long turned to the river as a way to understand the quote-unquote flow of time. And that's great because the river metaphor, he's totally right that this is one of the most common metaphors used for how time progresses, but it it is both a great metaphor because the river is unstoppable and mm-hmm. you have no control over it, but it's also not quite right because you can stand in a river and let it flow past you. Yes. So to, for the river metaphor to really work, you would have to sort of be 
part of the river. And you would have to be on a boat, yeah. which means it's essentially a, a, just another technology metaphor. Right. But even in a boat, you can paddle, you can swim against the current, That's you true. know, all that. You would have to essentially be the water itself with no power whatsoever to control your position upstream or downstream in the river. You would just flow and that's all you could do. Yeah, it's one of those metaphors that breaks down upon close examination. As Falk points out, a river flows in respect to the shore. Mm-hmm. But what are the banks of time? Right. Um, another one that comes up a lot, and especially with, with modern for modern minds, uh, Again, a technological metaphor is that of motion pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a there's a a film playing, and we are we are watching a portion of it, and then there is a played portion and an unplayed portion, and it's physically present in the you know when you're looking at a you know an old school projector. Mm-hmm. But also with the film, like you say, the river moves with respect to the shore. The film plays with respect to the viewer, or the projector. It would have to be that the film just is a thing that plays itself and that's all there is. Yeah. And in a way, these examples sum up a lot of the problems in understanding time, especially as we get into the often explored idea that time is an illusion because it feels real. It's a central aspect of our conscious experience. It's a part of the world we and we, as we see it and understand it. Uh, but yeah, when you uh, when you try to focus in on it and, and grab it by the neck, it just fades away. You know, we can mention this in a bit, but I think that there are some physicists who will say that time is an illusion in that time itself is not necessary to describe the universe. But I think they're in the minority, right? I mean, I think the majority of physicists would say, yeah, time is a real thing. It's just that there's certain aspects of it that are an illusion. Right. Our, our experience of time is an illusion because it privileges this sense of now that time is like happening mm-hmm. and that maybe the future has the potential to change and could be one way or another. Whereas, you know, it, just looking at the physics, there's no real reason to suspect that. Now, uh, on the, the heels of this uh, motion picture analogy, I should point out that uh, Max Tegmark, who we'll, mm. we'll come back to again later on. Yeah, Mad uh, Max. <laughs> he likes to point out, uh, point to a film on a DVD as a suitable metaphor. So in this, our life is a movie and space time is the DVD. So just consider a DVD copy of Risky Business. <laughs> is that his example or yours? Um, Ooh, you know, I I can't I can't remember because I keep thinking back to this analogy, and uh-huh. I always think of risky business for some ha- for some reason, and I can't remember if that was my flourish or his. Uh-huh. Uh, but uh, the idea here is the DVD doesn't change, uh, so you can't say Tom Cruise is traveling through the DVD. He's traveling through the lifespan of the film. And so is the viewer. Speed it up, slow it down, but the physical DVD doesn't change. Yeah, the movie just exists, mm-hmm. though you can watch it. Yeah. Then again, the viewer from the outside, the way yet again, all the, the metaphors fall apart. Now, every ancient society developed a, cal- a calendar system of some sort. Uh, even prehistoric people exposed to the naked cosmic expanse overhead, they they noted the movement uh, of the heavens. Mm-hmm. And uh, here's a, just another cool bit about technology and our, our measurement of time. I was reading uh, James Burke's The Day the Universe Changed, uh, which was one of his like two classic uh, works on the history of science and technology. Mm-hmm. And he made this point about the use of clocks in medieval times. He says that, uh, that without calendars and clocks or written records, memorable events marked the time, such as seasonal activities surrounding the harvest, which – goes in with what we've been saying already. So you, that way, it, it'd almost be like saying that 
instead of uh, using a ruler to measure distances, you'd measure distances by your by your relationship to landmarks, right. you know, familiar, important landmarks. And so instead of using some kind of standard measure of time, you measure them by relationship to festivals and important events. Right. And here's here's uh, what he had to say uh, uh, additionally. Quote, country people were intensely aware of the passage of the year, but between these seasonal cues, time in the modern sense did not exist. Even in rich villages, which could afford a water clock or a sundial, a watchman would call out the passing hours, shouting them from the church tower. The hours would echo through the surrounding countryside, shouted along by the workers in the field. Units of time smaller than an hour were rarely used. They would have no purpose in a world that moved at the pace of nature. Man, that's fascinating to consider. I mean, we so live in a world of minutes and seconds now. Yeah. I think, could it be that it's because we're surrounded by all these digital devices that keep time accurately? And of course, on top of that, we're constantly bemoaning the the, the relativistic experience of time. Mm-hmm. You know, where we look at the clock and we're like, we say, Jesus, where did that hour go? Yeah. I've been working for an hour. It doesn't feel like it. Or you think, oh, man, I, I've only been waiting here 10 minutes. It feels like an hour. Oh, right? I see. Yeah. yeah. So. It is – you do wonder to what extent we, we have this, this rigid timekeeping system and it ends up backfiring on, on us because our bodies and our experience of time, it still moves at the pace of nature. Do you think that maybe hyper-awareness and, and hyper-acute keeping track of time actually makes us more likely to squander time? You, I would say the intuitive thing would be the opposite, that if we're hyper-aware of time – that we, you know, we'd be very careful how we spend our minutes. But I wonder if there could be kind of some some backfiring mechanism there because I often think when I'm sitting around sort of watching the clock while I wish I was doing something else, I mm-hmm. can really waste a lot of time on the Internet. Yeah, I find that to be the case too. I mean part of it may be I just have poor time management skills, but yeah. uh, I'll often find myself in the trap of thinking, oh, uh, I have – I have two more hours before a particular, you know, self-imposed deadline. Mm-hmm. And and then I'll squander 15 minutes. And then after 15 minutes has passed, then I'll then I then I will say, "Oh my goodness, 15 minutes is over." And then mm-hmm. I'll feel bad for squandering the 15. I can say from my own experience, I honestly think that I make best use of my time when I'm not really keeping track of time. Yeah. I think I'm most productive. I think I use my time in ways that I'm I'm gl- I'm the most glad about after it's done when I'm not noticing the minutes going by. All right. So, for the individual, experiences of productivity may vary. But Fogg points out that linear time uh, becomes a cornerstone of the western world and may have paved the way for the scientific and industrial revolutions, quote, which in turn triggered an, inf- an affinity for reason and a sense of progress. By the end of the 17th century, Europeans viewed time as an abstract entity wholly independent of human activity. Oh, the horror, the depersonalized time. Yeah. That it's not, it's not really your time as a measure of your experience, but that it's this universal quantity that you must adhere to. Yeah. We're stuck with clock time. And on the surface of things, it, it seems like a rigid and unflinching order, right? Mm-hmm. It's this thing that we're, we're enslaved to, right? We measure the passage of time in a dreary procession of seconds, minutes, hours, and years. But this doesn't mean that time actually flows at a constant rate. 
Yeah, even the use of a of, of a sundial is the visual observation of the Earth's movements, and and even this is not a set speed. The speed of Earth's rotation is slowing because some of our angular momentum is being transferred via tidal force to the Moon's orbit. Now, granted, it's you know slowing at a uh, it's uh, it's that's occurring at a very slow pace, mm-hmm. but still, th- this is not a constant thing in the universe. Oh yeah, I mean, a couple billion years ago that. Earth's day was much shorter. In a couple more billion years, it'll be much longer. And just think how much you'll be able to get done. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not – that's without even getting into the topic of time dilation and the, and the observable reality uh, that time flows at a different rate depending on mass and speed, mm-hmm. which we'll be touching in on that more as we proceed. And, of course, we don't need machines to keep rhythm with the universe. Animals and plants uh, you know, all boast internal clocks to keep them in sync with their environment. And the brain plays a key role here. Uh, I have another uh, quote from, from Falk here that I thought was wonderful. Somehow we take in a vast array of chaotic sensory data from our environment and organize it into a meaningful picture of our surroundings. But it is an ever-changing picture. It is a picture that evolves in time, a picture rooted in time. Human beings have a remarkably sophisticated ability to form, store, and recall these mental images. Memory, it seems, is all about time. Now may just last a flickering moment, but in our minds it can endure for decades. That's fantastic, but I wonder about even the lasting a flickering moment, because what is going on in yeah. that flickering moment? It is now really being registered. I, I, I think we may have some bones to pick with that. <laughs> you know, it, all this makes me think of scientist uh, Michael Graziano's attention schema model of human consciousness. Mm-hmm. This is where uh, attention and control of attention play the crucial role in the human experience. Uh, coming back to the idea that time is the rate of change in the universe and that our brains serve, serve us in navigating this world of change – it would make sense, wouldn't it, that our brains would mirror the movement of causation. The lion must attack before it kills. The fruit must ripen before I can eat it. And thus my awareness follows. Yeah, this draws a connection to something that uh, I've discussed on some other podcasts before. I think this came up in old episodes of Forward Thinking. But the idea of uh, intelligence being a function of time, mm-hmm. this is something we don't often think about. But Imagine you were able to solve really, really difficult brain teaser type puzzles, but it took you a thousand years to do it. Would that be intelligence? <laughs> I mean, would you call that intelligence? By by that measure, you could take all kinds of natural phenomena that we don't usually think of as intelligent and call them intelligent. Like you could call evolution itself intelligent by that measure because it solves amazingly complex, difficult problems. It just takes millions of years to do it. Um, so at that point, is it even intelligence or is intelligence something about acceleration through time of solutions? Ooh, well, yeah, in that you get into you get into questions about emergent intelligence, the idea that any sophistic, uh, sufficiently sophisticated system is going to essentially have intelligence, mm-hmm. though maybe not in a way that matches up directly with our our conscious understanding of intelligence. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would adhere to a definition of intelligence that in, is necessarily rooted in some sense of time. Yeah. And this could make sense about why the evolution of intelligent minds came about. I mean, as animals needed to move faster to do things, like our predation theory from the Cambrian explosion, you know, as as, as the speed of life went up, was the need for intelligence increased? Well, this makes me think about the – you said if it takes a thousand years for you to solve a problem, Mm -hmm. is it intelligence? 
a lot of that would would I think be relative to the the lifespan of the creature, right? Yeah. Uh, and and with the human example, culture. So for a human being, if a human being spends a lifetime solving a, a sufficiently important problem, then it's considered a success. If if uh, if, a, if a scientist spends uh, their entire career developing a cure for a terrible illness and they they find it, they 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 crack that nut, mm-hmm. then that's a success. Uh but if you look at it from more like a you know ancient to humanoid uh, uh, situation, then you could say, well, if a problem isn't solved in uh, you know a day or two, then are you really solving the problem? Because the the challenges are that much more immediate, right? Yeah. And then if you're not a human, if you're if you're an ant, if you're if you're a cat or a dog, uh, then it seems like everything would be well, it would be at least as immediate. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, essentially what I'm building up to here is that it makes me think that the development of human intelligence or not human intelligence, specifically animal intelligence, is linked to the fast moving demands of right now. Yeah. Like the fact that decisions that need to be made quickly will strongly affect your survival is what powers the development of problem-solving acceleration, which is what intelligence could be. Yeah, and a lot of this, of course, involves not only memory, remembering what has come before, mm-hmm. but being able to extrapolate possible outcomes, to engage in uh, in mental time travel or chronesthesia, mm-hmm. uh, the idea where you can, you can think about what might happen if you do this, what might happen if you do that. Mm-hmm. You essentially run through various simulations in your mind without even necessarily you know consciously engaging in the exercise yeah. you're you're running the simulations and it it is rem- remarkable to what extent we can run those simulations you know it's the it's the same sort of energy that uh, that enables us to envision f- the far future of humanity uh, whether it actually matches up with realistic expectations or not. This is one of the many things about us that I think we take for granted and we don't stop to think how weird and amazing it is that we can travel through time mentally, forward and backward, and that we can we can construct events that have not yet happened out of events that happened in the past and are not before us right now. I mean, just, just pay attention to your dog <laughs> and then you can appreciate how amazing this skill is because your dog doesn't really seem to have much of this might have a little inkling of it, but it's not robust in the way yours is, and you should be thankful. Yeah, yeah. The dogs and cats, uh, animals in general, they 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 live in the moment, and uh, and there's a lot. I think there's a lot to be learned from them. Someone argue that we that that's one of the greatest gifts that they they uh, bestow upon us is that they allow us to connect with the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to rival the joy of a dog getting ready to go on a walk, like. I often think this. It happens every day. I'm going to take Charlie out. He's going to poop in the leaves. He's going to smell a bunch of thorns and get stuck on the face. Mm-hmm. And I've just never in my life been as happy about anything <laughs> as he is about the fact that he gets to go poop in some leaves. Yeah. All right. On that note, we should probably take a break. And when we get back, we'll get more into the physics of time and the now. All right. We're back. So we talk about this present moment a lot. Uh, but, but what is a moment? A very brief period of time. That's generally the the uh, the the uh, the definition that you run across. Yeah, it's hard to think about this once you start getting picky about the geometry of time. So if you imagine time as a space that you can map, and a moment is maybe like a point along a timeline. Geometrically, a point, you know, it, it does not have like a length. It, it is a point, right? It, right. It is it is of infinite thinness. 
and time can't really be like that or it wouldn't have any content, right? It would need to have some kind of content. So what is the length of a moment of time? And if there is a length of it, does it not just become a segment of time, in which case it's not really a moment but a memory? Right. So, you know, obviously we have seconds, we have microseconds, and we have many different levels of division beyond that, which I'm not going to list, but you can, you can look them up. There's some excellent charts that, that break down all the crazy, uh, variations of seconds. Robert, take me all the way down. The, take me turtles all the way down to the bottom of time. Is there, is there a smallest indivisible unit? Well, in physics, we have the Planck time. Uh, this is the time required for light to travel in a vacuum, a distance of one Planck length. That's essentially we're talking about 5.39 times 10 to the negative 44th power seconds. <laughs> That's a very short time. Yeah. it's In fact, it's too fast for scientific observation as it is dozens of orders of magnitude faster than, than anything we can observe. Mm-hmm. So you might ask yourself, well, is that the now? If we can't really break it down any further, that that has to be the now, right? Is that the thing that time is made of? Sometimes I think you see in like popular science articles that the Planck time gets brought up as like, oh, it is the fundamental unit of time. It is the smallest indivisible unit. But that's not really how it is. I mean, uh, I, I don't want to try to speak with too much authority. I'm not a physicist on this level. But my understanding is that Planck time – is not a fundamental indivisible unit of time, but that it's the smallest measurement of time that really makes sense within our dimensions theory, you know, within the way we conceive of physics in the universe. And that once you start dealing with smaller units of time, you can't do any meaningful calculations. Yes. That doesn't really mean that there aren't smaller measurements of time, just that smaller measurements of time would not be meaningful in our physics. Yeah, the, the briefest physically meaningful span of time. It makes me think of uh, what, what I like to think of as, as crumb theory with uh, with my son. He's, he's gotten out of this, but there was a, a period of time where he would eat something on his plate that was a little bit crumbly, mm-hmm. and then he would want more of it, but it's, it's almost like he could not see all the crumbs that could be scooped together to make another, you know, spoonful, another mouthful or two mm-hmm. of the thing he wanted more of. Yeah. It's like those the crumbs were just too small to consider. <laughs> but, you know, you, you with a little bit of training, you could make him see the crumbs within crumbs within crumbs. Yeah, and I think he's getting there. But for a while, it's like, I want another brownie. Well, how about all those crumbs of brownie? I'm sorry, but those are not significant uh, quantities of brownie for me to think about. So if you can't find a unit of now, that does kind of undermine the concept that there is such a thing as a now in the universe. You know, uh, if if it's all kind of these arbitrary units based on our, abil- our ability to measure things and our physics and our mathematical concepts. That's right. Yeah. But, but there remains this 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 other question, too, that if, let's just say that now is something that can't be really narrowed down to a particular piece of time, right? Yeah. But, but it's there. Well, then is it there for you and me? Is there, are we sharing the same now? It, it, would, it would seem to just in our experience, right? I am in the same room with you right now. Mm-hmm. Someone else is in a room on the other side of the planet and we are in the same now, right? It makes right. sense. It certainly does because let's say you called the other side of the planet with a telephone mm-hmm. and somebody answered the phone. You're both talking on the phone right now, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there does appear to be some very basic sense of now that is meaningful. 
But it's not as simple as that seems. Right. And to, to break this down, we're going to have to to board the train of uh, simultaneity. Oh, boy. So trains come up a lot in considerations of space-time. For instance, there's the, the idea that you could have a, a clock measurements made by two people, one on the ground and one on a train nearing the speed of light. Speed affects the passage of time on each person's wristwatch. Yeah. That's an example of one train thought experiment. Mm-hmm. But uh, another important one, and this is one that you see highlighted time and time again. Falk mentions it. Uh, other writers have mentioned it because it is it is a, a central sort of physics of time, philosophy of time uh, uh, thought experiment. And this one is uh, used to illustrate the uh, relativity of simultaneity. So you're probably wondering, what can thought experiments about simultaneous events reveal about the nature of now? Well, more than you might think. In fact, I would just want to point out for anybody who's like, ah, thought experiments, I don't want to get caught up in that philosophical junk. Uh, thought experiments have powered some of the greatest revolutions in physics in the 20th century. Uh, Einstein's breakthroughs, relativity was thought experiments before it was proven experimentally, and now it is proven experimentally. But yeah, so based on relativity, we'll go to this thought experiment. Imagine you are standing in the middle of a train car. You're right in the middle and you're holding a camera flash. And at each end of the car, the front of the car and the back of the car, there is another camera flash that's triggered by a light-sensitive photodiode. And this is a thing uh, that converts a light into an electric current. So if light strikes either of these sensors on the front of the car or the back of the car, the flashes they're attached to will go off. And if you were to shine a flashlight at just the front of the car sensor, that flash would go off and vice versa. Now, remember, you are standing in exactly the middle of the car, the exact halfway point between the uh, the front flash and the back flash, and you're holding this camera flash of your own. So let's say you set off the flash. What happens? Well, the sensors at the front and the back of the car detect that light at exactly the same time because you're equidistant from both of them, and they both flash simultaneously. And this is all good, right? Yeah. But, of course, what happens when you accelerate this train to close to the speed of light, which you must do in a in a proper train thought experiment? Yeah, light speed train. Yeah. So, uh, again, we position ourselves in the exact center of the car. We're traveling at almost the speed of light on top of this train. And uh, then we set off our flash. Mm-hmm. So the photodiodes register the light, and we experience the two resulting flashes as simultaneous occurrences. They occur now. So it's exactly the same, whether your train car is standing still or moving near the speed of light. When you're in the car and you set off the flash in the middle, you experience the front flash and the back flash going off at exactly the same time, even if the car is traveling at, you know, 99% of the speed of light. And you might be thinking like, wait a minute, why is that? How How can that be true if the car is moving so fast? Well, it's because we know from relativity, the speed of light is constant for all observers. The speed of light in a vacuum, and this could be complicated by if you imagine like air and stuff in the car, but let's just say there's a vacuum. Mm-hmm. In the car. Speed of light in a vacuum is constant for all observers. So the flashes at the front of the car and the back of the car would go off at the exact same time. But here's where it gets really weird. Imagine an observer on the train platform as your hyperspace train goes by at 99% of the speed of light, and there that, that observer is able to watch what's going on in the car at the same time that you are doing it. This person would see something completely different than what you're seeing. Yeah, to their eyes, the flash in our hands at the middle of the train triggers the rear flash first and the frontal flash second. 
So two simultaneous events are no longer seen as simultaneous from the outside. Two events happening in the now are in separate nows? Yes, and this is the weirdness of the world we live in. And relativity proves it. The speed of light is constant for all observers, so the person in the light speed train car experiences both flashes at the same time. The light has to travel the same distance to each one. Meanwhile, this outside observer sees the sensor at the back of the train car essentially chasing the light from the flash in your hand. The car's moving really fast, and that back of the car sensor is chasing the flash to catch up with it. Meanwhile, the sensor at the front of the train car is essentially running away from the flash at nearly the speed of light, so the light takes much longer to reach it. And this is not some trick of perception. For the outside observer, the light at the back of the train car actually does go off first, even though they still go off simultaneously for you inside the train car. Yeah, that, that is that is crazy to, to try and wrap one's head around. Yeah, but this is the truth of relativity. There is no now, except for maybe your own personal now. There is no universal now. There's no now that is also now somewhere far away. And according to Falk, it gets worse. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is uh, one final quote from him here, I think. Uh, it says, quote, what do we mean when we say a particular event is happening now? When we use the word now, we are really comparing two events. I can snap my fingers and then ask whether some other event is simultaneous with my fingers snapping or not. If it is, I say that the, uh, the event is happening now. In the Newtonian universe, I can legitimately ask what events in the universe are happening right now. The answer would be a unique set of occurrences scattered throughout space but lying on a single slice of time. I can snap my fingers and say at, say, noon, Eastern Standard Time on December 1st, 2009, and every event everywhere in the universe either is simultaneous with my finger snapping or it is not. That was fine for Newton but not for Einstein. As we have seen in special relativity, there is no universal agreement among observers as to whether two events actually are simultaneous or not, and thus there can be no universal now. So no now. No now yeah. for anybody. And this is not a like a time zone differential here. Well, no, hold on. I would say that this doesn't mean there is no now for anybody. There's no now for anybody that's also now for anybody else. Yes. Uh, though in many cases, your nows are going to be close enough together that it's fine for everyday purposes. Like you're going to be able to coordinate nows pretty well with the people around you. But this is not a feature of the universe. This is just like a close enough approximation that it doesn't matter. Right. But I mean, with enough space, uh, with enough distance between people, uh, if we were to reach such a point or, or indeed if there are other intelligent life forms that are perceiving time on another yes. world – my now could be in their future uh, or in their past or vice versa. Yeah, and think about this from a kind of science fiction standpoint. So we use the concept of now in our politics, for example. You know, it's very important that everybody has the election at the same now, right? You, you can't have the election one day for one group and then, you know, next year for another group and still function properly, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to be able to coordinate events temporally in order to get a polity working as it should. But try to imagine an interstellar civilization doing something like this. And this is one of the questions that I think sort of gets overlooked in a lot of science fiction imaginings of interstellar civilization spread out across vast distances of the universe is the way that the ability of these, uh, you know, top-down administrative controls would really be utterly crippled 
by the time differences, uh, the, essentially by the lack of a consensus now between all of the people within their control. Yeah, uh, this, this is something that came up in our, uh, the, the episode we, uh, Christian and I did a while back about interplanetary war. Yeah. Uh, that, uh, there have been, uh, people who've commented that you could not have an inter, interstellar, um, uh, empire like you see in Dune or Star Wars or, or Star Trek, if you want to call those, yeah, I guess they're empires in some cases, because you could not maintain order over such vast distances. I wouldn't say necessarily that you couldn't maintain order, but that it would be extremely difficult to maintain organization. Yes. I, I would say instead what you could maybe do is maintain order in a very brutal way. Maybe this actually explains the brutality of the empire in Star Wars. <laughs> this is the galactic empire, right? Yeah, it's what you got to do to hold it together. It's yeah. spanning hundreds of thousands of light years. Uh, you, you essentially have to just be able to whip everybody in line the moment you show up because you can't keep them on schedule of normal political uh, uh, obedience. It does make me think of of actual terrestrial models of empire, though, like particularly when you look at uh, at, at, at the history of China. Mm-hmm. Like what was one of the, the factors that, that enabled such uh, – such such excellent um, um, unification of uh, of different uh, peoples, and one of them is measurements. It's it's making sure everybody's using the same measurements, uh, mm-hmm. the same currency. Right. And if, if right, be, if you've got like a a coin that's supposed to have the same value at different sides of the empire, but they've got different amounts of gold in them, that might be a problem. Right. Uh, it's also worth noting um, this would you'd have to I think we'd have to do more studied early thesis apart. But if you go to China, all one time zone. There is one time zone in China, uh, no matter which end of the country you are on. All right, so we're going to take one more break. And when we come back, we will jump back in to the physics of now. All right, we're back. So I wanted to mention just a couple more interesting ideas from physicists about the way in which time is conceived for the individual and about the experience of now. So there is a 2015 book. Uh, by the uh, Dartmouth physicist Marcelo Gleiser called The Island of Knowledge, The Limits of Science and the Search for Meaning. And I think Gleiser makes a kind of interesting point about our concept of the present. Of course, as we've established so far, the present is not a description of anything that uh, exists in reality. It's merely an impression created by our brains. But one of the things he highlights is that the uh, our impression of the present at least the thing that feels like the present to us even if there is no universal simultaneity even that thing has clear physical limits and he ends up describing this concept known as the sphere of now so uh, here's an example what are you looking at right now not a few seconds ago but right this minute you know if you're if you're like many of our listeners i would bet it's either a car in front of you in traffic a person sitting across from you on the train, or some people ahead of you on the next row of treadmills. Huh. Okay. So are, I'm wondering where this is going. Are we basically getting the idea that now is related to proximity? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so uh, here's my real example. And just imagine instead of all that, you're looking at a VHS copy of Highlander to the Quickening. Oh, I wish. Uh, yeah, you're holding it a few feet from your eyes. <laughs> And uh, whatever this thing is, you have to realize in a technical sense that you're not really seeing the object as it is now. Now, this the, the time difference here probably doesn't matter enough 
to really make a difference in your life. But the light that reflects off the object or emits from it is traveling at a speed of about 300 million meters per second. And the light, the light gets absorbed by your retina after it bounces off the object a tiny, tiny fraction of a second after the time it leaves the object. So if the object you're looking at is within a few feet, it's too fast to make much of a difference in your behavior or anything like that. But it's worth remembering this. And this really does matter over longer distances. So imagine you're looking at an object on the moon. Once an object is on the moon, even though the moon is regularly visible to us, the difference is noticeable. So if you say that there are armies of Urukai standing on the surface of the moon, mooning us. Okay. We wouldn't see that for about 1.25 seconds, roughly, uh, because light travels at about 300,000 kilometers per second. The moon is on average about 380,000 kilometers away. So it's about a, a second and a quarter delay between the Earth and the moon. And no ordinary matter, energy, or information can travel faster than the speed of light. And so in a sense, you can think about the speed of light not only as the speed of the photons, but really as the speed of causality. I don't know if you've Hmm. heard about this concept before, but that the speed of light is sometimes interpreted in, in the universe as the maximum speed at which things can happen at which a thing can affect another thing, meaning that information is in some sense traded. Yeah, I think that's that's really good because especially in sci-fi uh, scenarios, we, we tend to just think of – it's easy to just fall into the trap of just thinking about speed and travel and movement from point A to point B mm-hmm. and not think about breaking that down into you know the simple rate of change and things happening. Yeah, and so so think about it. What could happen on the moon – to affect the Earth faster than the speed of light. I mean, nothing. Right? Nothing, unless uh, you might want to invoke some kind of quantum weirdness, but you yeah. know, nothing on the macro scale. The only thing that comes to mind is like cosmic expansion, and I, you know, I'd, I'd kind of have to twist myself in a knot to come up with a reason for that to occur at the moon. Mm-hmm. Like it would have to involve like Galactus showing up or something. I don't know. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a great way for the Earth to end though? I mean, I'm not saying I want the Earth to end. I love the Earth. I think the Earth should just keep on going. But if it has to end, wouldn't it be great if it ends by sudden, unexpected, rapid cosmic expansion? <laughs> we, we'd never be able to realize yeah. it though, right? Yeah, everything just kind of flies apart. It might as well. I mean, everybody's life ends and you might just as well assume that that's what occurs. But of course, in your moment of now, would you be able to realize that? Yeah, I, I guess so. I guess we'll get more into that in the next episode. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've already talked a little bit about the, uh, the effects of time dilation, of course, due to uh, Einstein's special and general theories of relativity. But those really made it possible for us to understand that both speed and gravity cause time to change. Time speeds up or slows down relative to outside observers. Uh, so, you know, if you synchronize two watches on Earth's surface and then you take one far out into space, like you take it to the moon, the watch on Earth will run slightly slower than the watch on the moon. And this isn't theoretical. This is experimentally proven, not on the moon, but with the surface of Earth and higher altitudes. Right. Uh, if you doubt that, look up the Hafele Keating experiments where these would synchronize some precise atomic clocks 
then put some in high altitude vehicles or in, you know, basically airplanes. <laughs> I don't know why I called them high altitude vehicles. <laughs> it just be needlessly confusing. Put them in airplanes, fly them around far from Earth's surface to show that time really does pass differently depending on how far you are from Earth's large center of gravity. Uh, but anyway, Gleiser uses all this to, to talk about this concept he refers to as the sphere of now. And he ends up saying that the present exists, quote, because our brain blurs reality, that our sense of the present really, I think for him, is some kind of like illusion created by the brain putting together some elements from different moments of time that are within the causality of our sphere of now. Okay, I like this. I like this idea of the the sphere of now. It's a nice sort of physical, visible, um, uh, you know, metaphor that we can employ. One more thing about moments in time I wanted to mention was an article uh, from October 2015 for Nautilus, again, with the physicist Max Tegmark, Mad Max, who is great for exploring all kinds of oh, yeah. weird corners of physics uh, and strange hypotheticals. Some would say nonsense. Others would say uh, <laughs> a- ambitious, ambitious train, trains of thought. Um, but he comes up with Try a picture, essentially. He's trying to create a model for what space-time looks like. And I think he's not the first person to imagine things like this. Stephen Hawking sort of tried to imagine things like this. But essentially, he said, try to picture the three dimensions of space that we live in collapse down to the form of a two-dimensional snapshot, like a, you know, a photograph. Uh, and let's say you got a little square Polaroid of the Earth and the Moon taken from a point in space above the North Pole. And you take one photo and you see the Earth is in the center and the moon is at one spot in its orbit. And then you take another photo and the moon is a little bit further along in its orbit. And now imagine you just keep taking these Polaroids continuously as fast as you could possibly take them. And then you stack them on top of each other sequentially to form a tower. Now the height of the tower of Polaroids here has become the dimension of time. Now imagine all these photos not as individual photos, but integrated together into a 3D image. And what you would sort of get out of this when you imagine the Earth and the Moon images stacked sequentially is you would get a cylinder of the Earth passing through the middle of this box and then a spiraling corkscrew of the moon going all all the way around it over and over again. And th- this is a way he comes up with of, of picturing 4D space-time. Now, this is the interesting thing. He says, try to imagine all the elementary particles in your body this way. Oh, wow. Like they begin to accumulate in this box. Like all these strands start coming together around the time of your conception. And as the elementary particles in your body move around, as blood cells ring around your circulatory system, as your nervous system passes around sodium and calcium and potassium ions, all of these complex interactions make the shape of this immensely complex braid in your time tower. And every time you eat and every time you breathe, every time you eliminate waste, new strands and little hairs get pulled into this braid or go out from it. And at the end of your life, of course, the braid unravels and the strands all go their own way. I've never really heard it put this way before. He's not the first to imagine a sort of block of space-time like this, but he's the first I've ever heard describe it as a braid of particles through time. And I think that's just beautiful. Yeah, it does seem far more in keeping with the, just the complexity of, of time as as we're discussing it here, when we start drawing in these uh, these physical understandings of what's occurring. But, of course, if you look at this image, you have to say, okay, what then is the moment? 
is there room for a now in this image? If there is, there's only a metaphorical one that's been created here in this uh, this image we've come up with. Uh, it's not really analogous exactly to reality, but what you'd have to picture is sort of a knot, right? Yeah. The, the now has become just this tangle that can't really be understood. It's a cross-section that can't be understood without all of the, the braid before it and after it. Isn't that perfect, though, this thing that is so easy to dismiss as this this single point, this this smallest common denominator, is actually this enormous tangle of complexity. Yeah. And Tegmark even says, quote, Some people find it emotionally displeasing to think of themselves as a collection of particles. I got a good laugh back in my 20s when my friend Emil addressed my friend Mats as an atom hoag, Swedish for atom heap, <laughs> uh, in an attempt to insult him. However... If someone says, I can't believe I'm just a heap of atoms, I object to the use of the word just. The elaborate space-time braid that corresponds to their mind is hands down the most beautifully complex type of pattern we've ever encountered in our universe. The world's fastest computer, the Grand Canyon, or even the sun, their space-time patterns are all simple in comparison. In other words, there's no braid like life. (laughs) So I guess that's probably going to wrap it up for today's episode, but we will come back next time because I feel like we haven't gotten to the bottom of this question yet. We've sort of discussed how there is no external or objective now. There's no now from the perspective of the universe that really makes any sense to talk about. Mm -hmm. And yet there very much is a sense of now that feels like it makes sense in our lives. So what is that now? What's going on in our brains when we conceive of the now? And I think that's what we'll explore next time. Yeah, join us as we we look at the philosophy of now as well as the psychology and neuroscience of the now. In the meantime, be sure to check out all our other episodes at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find, again, all the podcast episodes as well as blog posts, videos, links out to our various social media accounts such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram. And if you want to email us, as always, you can hit us up at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.